Let's pray. Well, Father, that is our prayer, that we will behold you and adore you. And I pray that this message will help us to that end. Pray that your word will speak clearly and truthfully to all of our hearts, that you will help us discern those areas that prevent us from adoring you as you should, as we should, as you deserve. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I wanted to start my sermon by asking you all a, a serious question, okay? Don't need to give me the answer out loud, it might incriminate you. Do you love yourself? Do you love yourself? Now, there's a variety of answers. Some might say, why, yes. What's not to love? And then others might say, not enough, or no. And it's in that second category that there's really a, a cottage industry designed to help people to, to love themselves. Uh, you need more self-esteem, you need more self-acceptance. Uh, For those of you who are children of the 80s, you might remember the words of the late great theologian Whitney Houston who said, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all, right? It's an ancient concept founded in the 80s, and even before that. <laughs> I think about 80s music, and 80s music is to this generation what oldies was to me in the 80s, right? Just the march of time. Now, This idea of self-love goes back even further than the 80s. In the 4th and 5th century, it was Buddha who said, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserves your love and affection. Self-love. In fact, it even goes back further than that. We read about it in Genesis chapter 3, where there was a simple rule. God told Adam and Eve, hey, enjoy the garden. Eat as much fruit as you want, except for from that tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And you guys know how the story goes. Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Right? God is some surly curmudgeon. He's trying to withhold good things from me. This tree looks good. I desire it. I'm worth it. I'm going to love me some fruit. This was the first act of self-love. And ever since then, there really have been two religions on this planet one with a devotion to self and the other with a devotion to God. And that is why the seminal commandment in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Right? It's to be devoted to the religion of divine love. Love to the divine. In the New Testament, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says in Matthew 22, 37 to 38, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first 
and great commandment. True religion is founded on a love that is directed away from self and towards God. And so as we come to our text today, we're going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We see Paul give a brief exposition on the concept of self-love. And in this text, we're going to see a list of all these attributes that accompany people during the last times. And what most commentators note is that all of these attributes are really an exposition on the mother concept of self-love. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Right? It really begins with lovers of self and it ends with lovers of pleasure instead of a love of God. And what Paul is arguing here is like in the context, remember how he's talking about how you need to be a gentle leader, you need to confront with gentleness in the hopes that you can win these people back to the Lord. He's asking Timothy to do that, but at the same time, he's pointing out the true character of these false teachers. They teach a false gospel that is designed to drive people away from the Lord. And, and what makes a gospel very attractive to people is it allows you to worship what you want to worship, which is another way of worshiping yourself. At the heart of all false religion is a love of self. You take idolatry, for instance. We often think that they just worshiped Baal, the sky god, because, well, they like Baal. But do you know why they worship the sky god? Because they wanted the sky god to give them rain. And why did they want the rain? Because they needed the rain for the harvest. And why did they want the harvest? Because they wanted money to fill their pocket and fill their bellies. It was a quid pro quo relationship. There's two religions on this planet, one with a devotion to self, another with a devotion to God. And we live in a day and age where we have been taught that you need to love yourself. You need to accept yourself. You need to care for yourself. What's missing in your life is a lack of self-esteem. And people will say, well, the reason why so many women stay in abusive relationships is because they're not, they haven't learned to, to love themselves adequately. The reason why many young people might starve themselves or cut their bodies is because they don't love themselves enough, right? There's, there's this therapeutic culture that teaches that you need to love yourself. And what I want to do is I want to show you the dark side of that comment, of, of, of those ideas. Some of you might sincerely believe, and I don't want to ridicule you, that self-esteem has saved your life in some way. And you might want to push back on what I have to say. But this is the truth. You can't love God and love yourself at the same time. You can't be devoted to God and be devoted to yourself at the same time. All of you have to make a choose. I have to make a choice. And to help you choose wisely, 
I want to challenge this concept of self-love by showing you the dark side of self-love. And we're going to do it by looking at the rise of self-love, the guise of self-love, and then the disguise of self-love. And when you see the dark side of self-love, hopefully that will drive you to the true religion of love of God, devotion to God instead of devotion to yourself. So let's look at the rise of self-love. Verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Paul is framing some of the conflict in the church by saying this should not surprise you. In the last days, it has been told that stuff like this was going to happen. Now, when you hear the term last days, what that is talking about is a period of time that is between the Pentecost, right, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles and the church was, was started, that extends all the way to the return of Christ. This is the last days. There's nothing additional that needs to happen for Jesus to come back. When Pentecost happened, Peter tells a curious crowd in Acts 2.17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's saying that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. We are in the last days. And it's almost as if Satan and this whole world knows it. They're in their last gasp. They know that their time can end at any moment when Jesus comes back. And so, something that accompanies these last days is an increasing godlessness. In 1 Timothy 4.2, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. See, there's, there's not a promise that this world is going to get better. This world is broken beyond repair. We cannot fix ourselves. There has to be an invasion, one that will happen when Jesus comes back and sets things right. But as it stands right now, we are in the, the last days. And in the last days, this religion of self-love will continue to rise and take hold. Now, it started in the garden. It continued throughout the idolatry of the Old Testament. And what's interesting is that even in um, the early church, they saw the presence of this religion of self-love. St. Augustine made this observation in the city of God. Two cities have been founded by two loves. The early by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the Lord God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in word, glorifies itself, the latter the Lord. Go forward a thousand years, John Calvin makes this observation. For so blindly do we all rush in the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has a good reason for exalting himself. There is no other remedy than to pluck up by the roots that most noxious pest, self-love. In every age, at every stage, humans have had a devotion to self, and it takes different forms. Now, the modern expression of self-love, especially in the West, is one that advocates this truth. I am worthy because of me. I am worthy because of me. I'll explain what that means. Now, it used to be people 
gained a sense of dignity and value by what was assigned to them. I have dignity because I come from this town or this country or this family. I have dignity because of the job I have or the class I occupy. I have dignity because of the, maybe the color of my skin. And you see some of the faults of this, right? It can lead to, let's say, the caste system in India where certain groups were assigned different levels of dignity by the general population. You would have slaves who are assigned a lower status of dignity than their masters. Blacks were assigned a lower level of dignity than the whites, right? When, it's, when dignity is assigned by other men explicitly, you could see the kind of abuse that it leads to. And so there was kind of a pushback that maybe the community doesn't assign dignity. Maybe we assign our own dignity. That we can find worth in and of ourselves. And so in this new age where we assign ourselves dignity and we say we are worthy because of us, there's a certain godlessness to that, right? Dignity is not assigned by God, it's assigned by, by you. And so there can be this real self-focus of self-discovery. Who am I really? And so you have people who find their identity by looking deep within themselves to find out their sexual preference and that gives them a sense of identity. People might obsess over personality tests so that I can discover who I really am and who I'm compatible with. And so there's this day and age where everyone serves as a guide to everybody else's journey of self-discovery. It's part of the reason why, why therapy is just so widely popular in this day and age. And the worst thing you can do is stifle somebody's journey of discovery. You would be oppressive. Parents are meant to guide their children in their self-discovery, not to try to form and shape their character, yet to find out who they really are. And so to say, love the sinner but hate the sin, well, when people define themselves by their sin, that is who they are. You're telling them to deny themselves. And that's because of this overarching belief that I am worthy because of me. It's the religion of self-love in the modern guise. And Paul pulls back on this, that self-love in, in any realm is characterized by some dark attributes, which he lists in verse 2. The guise of self-love, starting in verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 18 manifestations. Begins with love of self, ends with love of pleasure instead of love of God. They are bracketed by this concept of self-love. Now some of these come in pairs, some of them stand by themselves. There's no real rhyme or reason or logical sequence to it. Sometimes they're just arranged next to each other because they sound like the other words. But all of them point to the same truth that self-love is characteristic of the last times and of a humanity and a society that is opposed to the love of God. So we'll look at these one by one, beginning with self-love. Right? Self-love is when your center of gravity moves from pleasing God to pleasing yourself. 
you look out for number one. The question you ask in life is, what's in it for me? And this is the mother sin that births the successive sins, beginning with a love of money. Love of money. This was something that Timothy would have been familiar with. Paul warned him in the previous letter in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, most people don't love money because they just love cash, right? You might have the coin collector, but no one just takes cash and sleeps with it at night and says, it just feels good to rub this paper on my face. <laughs> the reason why people love money is because of what money can buy them. You might have heard that song, If I Had a Million Dollars. I mean, who hasn't thought about what they would do with a million dollars? I don't know what you'd, I would give to the building fund personally, but you might have other plans. <laughs> a vacation in Tahiti, skiing in Aspen, driving a Lamborghini to my class reunion. Boy, that would be awesome. <laughs> right? It, it's what, you know, this person would have finally noticed me. I'd really be somebody. I can join the Emporia Country Club. Who knows, Right? If I had a million dollars, think of all that I could do. It's like people think that money will buy them happiness. And they're open and shameless about it, right? But it's the love of money. You love money because of what it can get you. It's a devotion to self. It's self-love. Next two are proud and arrogant. Both of them work together. Proud speaks of somebody who, who boasts. Right? I'm the greatest. They'll tell you how great they are, and they often find very subtle ways of, of doing that. It's the humble brag, right? Don't mean to brag or anything, but the Lord's been good to me in giving me this raise. And then you have the proud. It's the sin of a high heart. You believe that God exists for your benefit. Other people exist for your benefit. Of course you deserve it. You are you, after all. Now, one thing about pride is, and boasting is, is a lot of times... I like to say, you don't have to be rich to be greedy. There's plenty of poor, greedy people, right? Who just wish they had more. Pride can often, often show itself in the fact that you are secretly resentful of people having more than you. Or you get really bothered by somebody else boasting. Who do they think they are to think like they own the place? Who are they to think that they're better than me? Clearly, I'm better than them. Right? That's self-love. It's a desire to have other people to be as devoted to you as you are. You have abusive, literally blasphemous, reviling. Not necessarily talking about blaspheming God, but they will revile other people. They have no problem berating the waiter who doesn't fill up their water. Hey, where's the ice? They believe that they're the most important customer in the restaurant. Why aren't people paying attention to them? Uh, they're also the people who, who, when they sense that somebody thinks that they are better than them or, or don't conform to this world, 
they like to give the gift of humility by humiliating other people with verbally abusive language. They're disobedient to their parents. Wait, what is that doing here? Pastor Dave, did you insert that here just to make a point? It's in there. People who love themselves don't want any restraints. And the natural God-given restraint given to every single child is their parent. I came across a, a discussion on a, a chat board doing research for the sermon. I wasn't looking for myself, just so you know. But it's an LGBT chat board. And one of the writers is, you know, basically said, I, I have a highly religious dad who's not really accepting of who I am. What should I do? And this is what the professional counselor said. He said, try to educate him on the topic by providing some written material or having him attend a support meeting with you. If he is still too blinded by his faith to accept you, then he may just have to move on without him. Now, isn't that interesting? Instead of having your dad try to conform you to the image of his faith, the image of God, you reject your dad because he's not going along with you on your journey of self-discovery. Right? His parents aren't in charge. He's in charge. Only he has the power to love himself. Don't trust mom and dad to help you do that. People who love themselves, they are ungrateful. All right? Makes sense? You can never do enough for somebody who loves themselves. If you don't meet their standards, they'll let you know. They're not grateful because they believe they deserve more. Or... If you give them what they want, they won't thank you because secretly they think, well, it's about time. It's about time. Unholy. Nothing is sacred. They have no problem using Jesus Christ as a cuss word. They have no sense of reverence. They don't have a high view of God or religion in general. We see in verse 3, they're heartless. They don't really have compassion for other people. They look out for number one. If a tornado is bearing down on this church, these are the people who will cast the children aside so that they can rush to the safety of the women's bathroom. And they're men. They're unappeasable. A better translation would be irreconcilable. They're not easy forgivers. And you might see this in the church where we all know we have been taught that if somebody has forgiven you, you need to forgive them. We, we all teach that we have been forgiven a great debt by Jesus Christ. He forgave us the 10,000 talent death, or debt. But somebody who is irreconcilable, they might say, well, sure, God forgives you, but that doesn't mean I have to. And when you say that, you know what you're saying? Your sin against me was greater than your sin against God. Talk about self-love. People who don't forgive, they don't do it because they love themselves. They're slanderous. Not only will they not forgive, they will seek to destroy with their tongue. How dare you do this to me? And they will assault your reputation because you assaulted them. And often they do it without self-control. I mean, one thing about self-control is you, you have to do what? You have to deny yourself. You see that hot fudge sundae that's heaped on top of a brownie. I saw it. I took it and I ate it. 
No, it was your kid's brownie and they were at the bathroom, but it doesn't matter. You wanted it at that moment. Or every addict, right, they start off with, I deserve this drink. I deserve it. They lose self-control. They're brutal. I mean, they have no trouble harming other people with their words or their actions. Not loving good. They don't look out for the good of humanity. They're treacherous. They will throw people under the bus. Loyalty only goes so far as it serves their own self-interest. They're reckless. You think about the high school kid who drives 50 miles per hour in your neighborhood. They're reckless. That is self-love. Did you know that? Because they don't care about the safety and well-being of other people. And just like some people might be careless in how they drive, they might be careless with their tongue. They use sarcasm to cut people down and when people start crying or being upset, they say, well, that's their problem. They're reckless. Swollen with conceit. They believe every good thing that's said about them and they disbelieve every bad thing that's said about them. Carly Simon wrote a great song about this. You're so vain. I bet you think the song is about you. We all know the person, don't we? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They love themselves. And they will enjoy pleasure to the hurt of other people. This is a husband who has lusty internet, sec lusty internet sessions and doesn't love his wife. This is the person who gives in to their laziness and doesn't serve their family. And they get angry when you try to break them away from their first love. And this kind of self-love is not out there. It can actually be in here. Remember, Paul is talking about the character of these people, and at the very end he says, avoid these people. He's probably talking about church excommunication here, that these people are resident within the church, but they're under a disguise. Look at verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. I mean, this takes many different disguises. You might have somebody who, they go through all the liturgy, they show up at church, they give, they sacrifice, but when they leave the church, the spiritual mass goes off and they are devoted to their true religion. You see it in their marriage and their family. They love themselves and they get upset that other people don't love them as much as they do. Or, or these are people who are able to hide behind the mask of just talking about Jesus. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Don't you just love Jesus? Oh, I love Jesus. I love singing about Jesus, talking about Jesus. Or they talk about theology and all these finer points of doctrine, but their heart is still far from him. I mean, there's all kinds of disguises that people have to hide the fact that they really love themselves and they're using religion as a means of furthering their self-love. It's a means of getting relationships. It might be a, a means of getting business contacts or even just feeling good about yourself. And what Paul says is they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They have a veneer of religion, but it's without power. In 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says to Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Isn't that interesting? He's given us the Holy Spirit, and it has power to love 
and it's talking about loving yourself, loving other people, loving God, and self-control, denying yourself. When you have a religion of self-love, there is no power in that religion. 1 Timothy 5.10, there's a conflict between the love of God and love of self. Verse 5, the aim of our charge, 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Our charge is to love outwardly. In contrast, verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law. They wanted the reputation without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make confident assertions. So they have all these speculations and it leads to a warped religion that justifies their self-love. Jim Jones, Joseph Smith, both use religion to sanctify, quote-unquote, their sexual perversions. And there's different ways that this self-love can integrate itself into Christianity, where there's a a replacement gospel. I'll give you two of them. You have the gospel of self-righteousness, and then you have the gospel of self-fulfillment. The gospel of self-righteousness. Basically, it shows itself in a number of ways, where the goal of the gospel of self-righteousness is to feel good about being more righteous than other people. I mean, let's, let's just be honest, okay? Self-righteousness feels pretty good. It feels pretty good to feel superior to other people. And so this gospel of self-righteousness finds a way where you can be rewarded by feelings of superiority. One might be rule-keeping, right? you got to keep these rules. You don't listen to certain music, you don't watch certain movies, you don't play cards, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this. And these rules have to be austere enough that not everybody could do them, but low enough that you can do them. And so if you're able to do what other people can do, you can say, huh, you know Jim Bob... He doesn't read the Bible every day like me. He reads the daily bread. See Susie over there? See her staring at the screen? It's because she doesn't know the words of the song. Unlike me. Oh, Lord, give me patience to deal with these little people. Right? That's the gospel of self-righteousness. Now, it might be through actions, but sometimes it's through thought. Like, I have the right doctrine. I mean, I've been amazed... Uh, how many people might discover our church and say, I finally found a church that believes the right kind of doctrine. They believe in Calvinism, a high view of God, predestination. I finally found a church. And, and what happens is they were in another church and they were able to keep all these godly people at bay because they had the right doctrine, which gave them permission to look down on other people for their wrong views of God. And then they come to a church that believes the same thing and their life has been exposed for the wreck that it is. See, a lot of times people can hide behind doctrinal precision to mask a life that's characterized by self-love and self-indulgence, right? So I'm going to master these rules over here and ignore the great laws of loving God and loving other people. That is the religion of self-righteousness. The other one is the gospel of self-fulfillment. That religion is a way 
that you can feel better about yourself. And this is one of the growing and probably the more dominant strain in the American church. And there's a reason for it. Back in the 60s, when the church growth movement really began to take hold, it began by people going door to door and asking the question, excuse me, do you go to church? No, you don't. Okay, let me ask you a question. What would it take to get you back in church? And they had a laundry list of things that they would like, but one thing that was said over and over again is, I don't want to go to church where they tell me to turn or burn. I don't want to go to a church where they tell me about hell. And so there was some ingenuity involved where if the threat of hell was not to be mentioned, how do you persuade people to convert? And the answer is called the felt needs gospel. That you tell them that if you convert, you will have a better life. So instead of saying, damned, Jesus offers salvation. They say, anxious, Jesus offers rest. Worried, Jesus can be trusted. Concerned, Jesus offers security. And this preaches quite well to a, a culture that had a growing drive to understand self-esteem. And so there'd be some creative exegesis going on where you know about the first commandment, right? Is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And they would say, you know what? Maybe we've understood that all wrong. Maybe we need to love ourselves before we can love our neighbor. But is that what Jesus is saying? That you need to learn how to love your neighbor before you love your, or love yourself before you love your neighbor? Now here's the deal. We're really good at loving ourselves. You're thirsty. Oh, the parched throat. So what do you do? You love yourself and you get yourself a drink. You're hungry. So what do you do? You love yourself and you give yourself a snack, a cookie. You're tired. Well, you love yourself. By taking a nap, you love yourself. The command is this. When your neighbor is thirsty, you give him a drink. When your neighbor is hungry, you give him something to eat. When he is tired, you find a way to give him or her rest. Right? That's the idea. Jesus is not commanding you to love yourself. He's saying you guys already do that too well. The command is to be selfless and love other people. Now, this doesn't mean that the call to follow Jesus is to deny your humanity. All right? There is a sense that if you never eat, you will faint. If you never drink, right, bad things will happen. If you never sleep, you'll start hallucinating and get really grumpy and irritable. Right? So there is a sense where deny yourself and you do have a sense of self-care, but that doesn't mean that you just ignore your kids, put on slippers, eat bonbons, and watch football. I'm trying to blend both parents here, by the way, not just singling out one. <laughs> right? And, and so th this is the reason why self-discovery, one, is unbiblical, but it's really a trap. 
If you go around this planet with this idea that no one can love yourself like you, you're always going to look for maybe somebody to help you on that journey, and you're going to be disappointed because, guess what? No one will love you as much as you love you. And isn't that the source of many conflicts? Why don't you love me like I deserve? And she's saying, why don't you love me like I deserve? I mean, is there even any common ground? Because everyone has a different idol because they're different people all devoted to themselves and self-love. And you might tell yourself, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, doggone it, people like me. But what happens when you go out into this world and there's people who are smarter than you and you're not smart enough to get that job? You're not good enough or competent to keep that job. That girlfriend says, thanks, but no thanks, and sees another guy. What, what happens when people don't like you? I mean, it's a great big bad world out there, and if you expected all of it to cater to you, what is going to happen? You see, if you're devoted to the love of yourself, and you love yourself because you are worthy of your own love, what's that based off of? If you're waiting for a community to assign you worth and value, what's that based off of? It's a trap. Self-love is a trap. Not only will it eventually make you miserable in this life, it will make you miserable in the life to come. And so, how do you get rescued from this dread religion of self-love? Well, number one, you need to understand that you're not that lovable. What? Yep, I'm just telling you. Romans 3, 10 through 14. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. Whoa, you mean I'm not worthy, I'm worthless? Yep, that's what the Bible says. No one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they're they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And you might say, yo, listen, Pastor Dave, I'm a good person and I know it. And I've used this before, so bear with me, church. If all of your thoughts of this past week were written in great detail in this book, how would you feel about me reading them out loud? Well, this is what you thought about your parents. This is what you thought about your spouse, what you thought about your siblings. Ooh, wow, there's this long section about what you really think of Pastor Dave. This is going to be... <laughs> right? You'd be mortified, wouldn't you? Because deep down, we all know. We all know the human heart. I mean, that might be why people focus on self-esteem so much, because they realize deep down there's not a lot to love. That's true. That is true. And so, what do you do about this? Well, I think there's a couple of things to remember. Number one, you need to remember that self-love is a trap. And it's abhorrent to God. Chuck Swindoll said, the world's smallest package is a man all wrapped up in himself. Right? Do you know people like that? You look at them, you're like, ew. But when you're wrapped up in yourself, what do you think God thinks? Right? You're trying to give yourself value and worth. But the reason why we have value and worth is because we have been assigned dignity by God. 
The community doesn't give it to you. You don't give it to you. God gives it to you because you were made in his image. Now, you're made in his image, and with that is a wonderful responsibility, but also there's some responsibilities. There's opportunity and responsibilities. And the fact is, all of us have sinned in some way. All of us have been selfish, thoughtless, self-focused, loved ourselves. We have turned away from him, and we are corrupted. And when you understand that you have done that, you are on the right track. Because this is what Jesus did. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, out of love for you, lived the perfect life you should have lived and died the life, died the death you should have died. So that when you believe in him, you can have his righteousness and stand before the Lord. And this was done not because of you, actually in spite of you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's by grace. You didn't do anything to deserve it. I mean, I think a lot of times when you're in a relationship, you want to hear all the reasons why somebody loves you. Well, why do you love me again? Oh, because you're so good looking and you're so intelligent and you're funny and I really like watching you preach. I mean, you want to hear all that stuff. <laughs> but usually it's like you're earning their love, right? But what happens when you lose that? You think about the woman who is beautiful, marries her husband, and he just adores her. On their honeymoon, they get into a car accident and it leaves her disfigured as her face was burned in the accident. How secure will she be in her husband's love? But if her husband still is just as devoted to her as before, I mean, isn't that better? And you know what? You look at that husband and say, that's a good man. You see, the way God designed salvation is so that when people look at us, and say, why does God love that person? It's because he's a good God. He loves us in spite of us. And that shows the greatness and the magnitude of his love. And, and one of the things that he does is he changes and he transforms us to make us even more lovable. I mean, if you're looking within yourself to, to love yourself, and you're looking within yourself to be who you really are, the answer of who you really are and who you will be is not found in here, it's really found up there. There's a transformation that's supposed to take place. Ephesians 4, 20-24. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. And part of this new self is to be like Christ. And Christ was someone who was sacrificially awed by the love of God and the love of other people. You see, the thing is, self-love really is a trap. 
If you're always looking at yourself, you're never looking up at the majesty of the Lord or the majesty of even his creation. About three years ago, our family took a vacation in the West and we, we were going to drive from California up to Idaho and we decided to spend a couple nights in Lake Tahoe. And on the last day in Tahoe, we went on a Castle Rock hike. And we, the trailhead was under construction, but that didn't stop us. We went ahead and parked anyway, and we were practically the only people on this path. So you kind of wind through this wooded area. You kind of see the lake at certain points, and then there's this big rock edifice. And so we spent maybe a half hour scrambling and climbing. I'm kind of, Becky's kind of leading the way. I'm at the back trying to make sure that all the kids get up there safely. And at the very end of it, I finally pushed my family up there and then I got up, pushed myself up and I stood and immediately I began to wobble. I, I saw Lake Tahoe in its entirety and I nearly lost function of my legs. I was thankful I didn't have a full bladder at that moment. <laughs> but I was just so, so awed by what I saw, I just was lost in the majesty. Now, it wasn't the time to, to take selfies. It's time to take it in. We, we did take selfies later. <laughs> but you know, when somebody's always looking at themselves, they're never awed by God. They're never awed by, by who he really is. You see, the solution to self-love is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. To have a high view of God, to see his majesty, the majesty of his love, and be transformed by that. And the fact is, you can't be devoted to yourself and devoted to God at the same time. You have to make the choice. In fact, when Jesus calls all of us to follow him, we read in Matthew 16, 24 to 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right? If you want to have life, eternal life, and experience the greatest love of all, it's not by learning how to love yourself. It's learning to deny yourself Take up your cross, follow Jesus. And when you are devoted and when you love God, you'll never be able to outlove God. There's one being who can love yourself more than you, and that is the Lord. And the competition between the two is not even close. But to gain that kind of love, you have to renounce your love of self. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for your great love for us. And I pray that your great love will drown out our aspirations of self-love, that we will understand that self-love is a trap, it has a dark side, and that we will actively seek to deny ourselves, to follow you, to experience the greatness of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.